Hello everyone and welcome again to another episode of Letter of Law Interviews. I am extremely delighted to welcome you all to a brand new series that Letter of Law is starting called The Art of Writing and Publishing a Legal Research Paper. Uh, through this series I aim to interact with some of my favorite academic writers and researchers from the practice of the law from academia from policy and so on try to learn their stories and their process of writing and in the process hopefully all of us can become slightly better writers and get inspired to write more to begin the first episode of this series i'm very happy to be joined uh, by mr shutanjya bharadwaj uh, shutanjya is a lawyer a litigator who graduated from nlu delhi and joined the chambers of senior advocate gopal sankara narayanan after a year long stint with sir he went on to the michigan school of law in usa to obtain a degree of llm and he returned to continue uh, the practice of litigation here in new delhi and he still continues working with uh, gopal sir along with handling some of his own matters in addition to all that shrutanjay is of course a very prolific writer I have enjoyed interacting and reading his work thoroughly, and I'm so so grateful, Shutanjya, that you could join me today. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thanks. So you know, Shutanjya, the first question that I usually ask all my guests is that, of course, the introduction I gave of you is how I understand you. But how would you like to introduce yourself to our viewers? Uh, you know, given the topic of our discussion today. i am uh, somebody who tries to juggle both litigation and academic research and writing uh, i don't think i do it very well but uh, i started uh, this process of academic writing when i was in my uh, third year of law school i think uh, and since then it has been something that has intrigued me a lot and even after i joined litigation i haven't been able to decide which one i like more uh, is it litigation or is it uh, academic writing so yeah i am uh, somebody who does both and apart from these things i enjoy playing basketball uh, i enjoy music and poetry wow that's wonderful so you know to start this off like you said you started writing in your third year so what was this trigger point you know how did you get interested in academic writing how did you decide okay now is the right time for me to author a paper and what were your initial experiences with academic writing so just to clarify that i don't mean that in my third year i was going to write a uh, a paper with the aim that i will publish it it was actually a college project uh, but Uh, you know, I don't know how it is in most law schools. In, in my law school, the format of the curriculum is that every subject requires you to submit a mandatory project. Now, most projects are uh, are not taken very seriously, to say the least. <laughs> but uh, uh, but our constitutional law course in third year was quite rigorous. Uh, we had a great professor, and uh, the topics that were given to us were not just. Uh, i mean ordinary topics where uh, other subject would just be like they'll give us a topic and say write something on it but that uh, project was uh, we pick an article of the constitution from part 3 fundamental rights and we redraft it and uh, so that necessarily involves it was quite fascinating it necessarily involves you first pointing out what the flaws are 
in the way it's currently formulated are there any flaws number one number two uh, if there are any flaws which are they and then you go back to the drafting history to find out why it was framed in a particular way uh, and then when you suggest changes you have to really defend that position against something that the constituent assembly has suggested so uh, and uh, this project was obviously after you submit the written part of it it's followed by a viva with the professor who's himself uh, extremely sharp obviously so he will uh, be attacking you continuously on whatever you have to say so it was a process that really forced me to think very carefully about what i'm writing i can't just uh, say anything in that uh, in that piece so when i look back at why i'm interested in this process i think that is that is the point when i really became i really started to value that process perhaps as a process of intellectual growth for me so it wasn't something i was looking as looking at as a cv building exercise or uh, this will take me to the next career goal yeah. that, that wasn't the motivation the motivation was wow look at what this is doing to me uh, i i'm feeling so good about uh, myself after having gone through this challenging process so that was the motivation so i i i place it somewhere there no that's wonderful and i i believe you're really fortunate you know to have begun your journey into writing not because you wanted something to be added to your cv but because you know your professors pushed you and you enjoyed the process of writing in itself but that's not the situation i'm afraid in most law schools you know and uh, to talk about it there are already so many things happening in any given law school there's of course moot courts adr competitions judgment writing this and that and on top of this this we have the ghost of academic writing lingering over our heads so how should a student in the first place venture into this field uh, how how should a person discover if he or she is even interested in it or can be good at it yeah so i'll i'll answer that in two parts one uh, one is about moot courts uh, specifically because you mentioned that second is about uh, what are the reasons that one should think about when pursuing this uh, i'll answer the second part first the reasons in my view should be the same uh, which is your own personal intellectual growth that comes with the process of writing uh, one of my professors in the llm course used to say there is one line i can never forget he said it's very easy to write 1000 words <laughs> and it was like a, he was telling us uh, look you are required to submit these three response papers over the course of the semester every every paper has to be 1000 words long he said look it's very easy to write 1000 words very difficult to write 1000 words that are worth reading and uh, extremely uh, insightful uh, especially because he was himself somebody who's authored excellent pieces very very simple language but very profound thoughts his name is scott hershowitz uh, if if somebody wants to look him up he's written a interesting paper on harry potter and tort law theory <laughs> uh, <laughs> fascinating yeah so uh, i mean the first thing i want to say is pushing yourself to write in a way that is very very accessible to your audience and at the same time uh, pushes them to uh, think with you on the same page uh, that's really the challenge of academic writing and it's something that that's not just an achievement but it's something that uh, brings immense intellectual growth for you as an individual you know i always say when you're talking like this uh, verbally to somebody and suppose we uh, start an argument and 
you say something and i say something it's very easy to wing it yeah. it's very easy to say something and get away with it without uh, and it's possible that in this in the split second i will say something so confidently and so passionately and so persuasively that you will be convinced by it. but if i write the same thing down and then you read it you will have so much time to think critically about it and you will just destroy my art so when you're writing that pressure of being convincing but also deep is is uh, is a good pressure to have and it's good for your intellectual growth that's why you should write in my view uh, so that's that's my answer to your first question the second about moot courts i just wanted to point out my first paper which i ended up publishing this was at the uh, very end of my last year in college that was my first journal publication it, uh, it's called obscenity in the kiss and it stemmed out of my participation in a moot uh, yeah. which is the kerala law academy uh, moot court competition uh, me and my college buddy we went together for it and the problem was about it was a two page problem beautiful there's just uh, a couple who kissed in a public place and were hounded up for uh, obscene acts in public place under section 294 of the ipc and uh, obviously this was contemporary uh, of contemporary relevance at that time because the kiss of love protests uh, were happening against uh, right wing attempts to uh, cur- curtail couples liberties so uh, that really fascinated me and because i had done so much research uh, in that area and discussed it uh, so passionately with with saral who was my buddy who, with, with whom i went for the competition he is himself extremely sharp and competent when it comes to constitutional law and both of us were so interested in this that we kept bouncing ideas off each other's uh, each other's heads and it was overall a great experience that's why i ultimately decided that i want to say something about this issue so it was not me picking up a topic and thinking that let's try academic writing mm-hmm. it was rather the other way around it was it's something i was already very interested in because of a prior experience it can be booting for me it can be something else or somebody else but after that i really wanted to say something to the world about it mm-hmm. and uh, that really pushed me and i was fortunate enough to have really good professors in college at that time who who were willing to engage with me on my on my arguments and say no no you're going wrong there etc etc and i believe this is something that uh, nowadays is much easier even for other law schools uh, who, who uh, or students who may not feel that they have uh, great teachers around them they can always reach out to people uh, on social media etc etc just to take comments on on their drafts and i think that process is also very critical so uh, what i meant meant to just answer your question in uh, was that moots and adrs and other activities can also often be the guiding factors for your uh, journey to begin and that's okay uh, in fact i would prefer that uh, your first academic paper or everybody's first academic paper should be not because you you saw a call for papers in a uh, in an ad and you decided to write on a particular topic but because there was a topic you were exposed to and you were really fascinated by it and you thought i need to read up more on this and maybe say something about it so that that should be the correct motivation in my view that's a really interesting perspective thanks for sharing your thoughts on that i have one preliminary question before i delve 
into the substantive portions of academic writing you are primarily a litigator um, and academia like you say is also something that you keep trying to do but how do you manage that because from, from what i've heard and from what i understand working in a senior's chamber can be a grueling exercise often with very little time to navigate your own social and personal life so how do you find the time to write about these issues and manage to write such comprehensive 40 50 page papers so uh, it's not as uh, as quick as it may seem for example uh, so so both my bosses just just to uh, i think correct you on the introduction gopal sir and ari priya ma'am i i work for both of them and uh, both of them are fairly uh, supportive of me doing these other things on the side so that is a big thing uh, i mean big factor that allows me to do this and i think that's the first thing i want to acknowledge gopal sir himself is a, a terrific academic and if you just look him up uh, some of his pieces are really thought provoking uh the uh, so that that's one factor I've, they always encourage me the other factor is yes i have very little time but uh, that also means that i can uh, I, i mean i don't have to feel that i have finished this draft in uh, two months and this sort of ties in with what i said earlier because i am not always responding to calls for papers i don't think i've ever done that in any of my publications i've always written on topics that i have discovered during the course of some other research or some moot or something else and then decided to write on it and uh because i am not setting any deadlines for myself that larger bench rule paper by the way uh, the one i published at the, uh, the recently it that was written over two years i think wow with my co-author uh, ayush yeah. ayush bahati is my junior and very close friend from college and we kept discuss i remember that i was in the nclt uh, this one day and we were discussing that uh, we, we were discussing two judgments of the supreme court one was on manifest arbitrariness that shaira bangu and another was uh, jarnail singh uh, that constitution bench which said uh, that nagaraj was wrong on one point that scs sts have to be treated as backward and that that's contrary to indrasani etc so uh, we were just discussing that the supreme court is just ignoring precedent or either ignoring it or just sidestepping it in ways it shouldn't be doing and then we just started talking and then we realized there are okay there are two more examples of this and then next month one of us texted again saying there's one more example of this and that's how it started and i think ultimately we decided okay why don't we put this together in a paper and see if we can make an argument and uh, uh i think uh, i also owe it to him uh, for the fact that uh, he's somebody i can have excellent discussions with uh, just like my uh, just like saral i was talking uh, telling you about earlier and because of that uh, these ideas have uh, some scope of growing in the sense that we started talking about why does it matter what what changes if justice rohinton nariman ignores a five judge bench decision but gives out this brilliant doctrine of manifest arbitrariness if the end is so good why do you care that somebody has uh, ignored a uh, coordinate bench judgment and uh, i mean that got us to stare decisis and the scholarship on that and it's uh, it's a rewarding experience overall so uh, you keep doing it i think that's the answer of it that uh, i do it because i don't have deadlines for myself 
I do it at my own pace. Uh, and I have often have friends who are either co-authoring the piece with me or uh, are just willing to read my pieces and give them uh, their own critical comments. So uh, I think that's the answer. Yeah. Right. That's that's wonderful. Uh, so to begin with our uh, substantive discussion on academic writing, the first uh, area that I want to touch upon is uh, deciding or choosing the topic for your research and subsequent writing. Now, like you said, that most of your paper ideas have come from your own work. The obscenity in the kiss uh, emerged from your mood. The LBR, like you, the LBR paper, like you said, emerged also from discussions with friends. And as it so happened, these topics were also in contemporary relevance at that point in time. But um, if someone is eager to start writing and you know cannot wait to do a mood or perhaps do something to get an idea to write, what should that person do to find a topic that would be uh, wanted by the editors that would be fun to write? How, how what's the process of identifying a good topic? Yeah, so. Uh, I can tell you what I've heard from other people, mm-hmm. but uh, you should take this answer with a pinch of salt because I have never done this. Okay. Like I, said. I, I have always chosen my topics based on uh, accidental discoveries uh, during other pursuits. So uh, what other people say and very wise people say is that uh, the first checkbox that you have to tick is the topic should be contemporary. That's the first one. And when you say contemporary, uh, you don't mean contemporary in a, in a way that it is contemporarily relevant. Many things are relevant today. For example, even the basic structure doctrine, which is laid down in 1973, is relevant today in the sense that if there's a constitutional amendment, you can always challenge it. But there is a different category of topics which you will find uh, are being debated today and hotly. So uh, until a year ago, at least, the Citizenship Amendment Act was being debated hotly. Uh, The Maratha issue was being debated hotly. And you will have uh, many issues in other areas of law as well. I'm more familiar with constitutional law and surrounding areas. But even in commercial areas, uh, insolvency law, companies law, environment law, you'll find many areas that are the firecrackers thing or anything. I mean, you can... uh, basically identify things on which different people are giving out different viewpoints. And if you can pick up one of those topics and supply a legal understanding of that issue, which has not been supplied so far, uh, that is likely to be accepted by journals. Uh, Again, this is, uh, this sounds much easier than it actually is. It's uh, very tough, especially when you're Many of these issues will ultimately boil down to some of the cliche topics like media trials or uh, should the court uh, be venturing into policy issues, etc. And then you will find yourself in this uh, huge body of literature that's already been written and then you don't have anything new to say about it. Uh, So it's difficult, uh, but uh, I suppose you just have to navigate your way through to find a find some area within that debate which is untouched so far right that that's an interesting perspective but you know just to pick your brains a little on this topic uh, like you said it's important to pick something of contemporary relevance but on that i was speaking with a friend of mine who's working as a legal ed, uh, you know legal journalist for a uh, leading platform these days 
and he told me that if you want to write something on a contemporary topic you know you have to be sure if you're writing a short blog article if if something's being debated today you your piece must come out tomorrow because if that doesn't happen someone 10 people will have written on it and you wouldn't have anything new left to say what do you make of all this because from what i understand academic research and writing is a sustained process you know you need to develop your thoughts and ideas and then publish but this blog and short article culture has really incentivized writing quickly at the cost of uh, depth in thought what do you make of this yeah i agree in part uh, i think in my head there is this classification of uh, blogs and blogs and you will have uh, one category which is more geared to this uh, let's give a bite kind of a kind of a scene and i feel that uh, most journalism uh, pages are more geared to that but there are some other blogs which i would i would say are more academically driven and they don't necessarily care about uh, publishing it fast uh, rather than they, they they really want to publish something of quality and i think it's uh, fine either way and when i initially said this is how you look for a topic in my head were journals not uh, not blogs at all so i would suggest that anybody who wants to begin the process of writing should start with a with a journal and should start with a long piece very well researched uh, with enough citations uh, engaging with prior literature just to be uh, rigorous enough with the process <clears throat> so that there are two reviewers who will come back to you with your comments you will get rejected 10 times then you will revise your paper then publish it the 11th time and you'll know uh, what it takes to be logically coherent one and two just uh, be okay with your language these two things are uh, they sound very very basic but they are so essential uh, in any legal writing that uh, the process of writing in a journal can teach teach them to you and uh, it is only after that that i think you should venture into these uh, blogs or, or these news articles because i feel like these news articles and blogs will give you the sense of reward in the sense that yes i have a publication yes i can put it up on my linkedin and uh, now i am not falling behind my peers <laughs> that sense can uh, easily be rewarding but i i feel that is misplaced reward you should try to aim uh to build the skill in you rather than uh, going for uh, these let's publish immediately kind of kind of stuff that's that's actually yeah, yeah no just to share my own experience even though you know i'm i'm a beginner I've, i don't know anything about writing just started just like you said i wrote short articles that brought me a sense of achievement and currently i'm in the process of writing a paper you know 10000 words in and still i feel that what am i writing where am i with this so i think that's that's really good advice to start with writing a full fledged paper it, it can really teach you so many things and then short articles i think can come really quickly to you do you think that do you think yeah that? yeah yeah i think that is absolutely right and just to add to that i think uh, there is this uh, in academia i think they, uh, they they call it some some syndrome or something now i'm forgetting the name it basically means uh, uh, pu- publish or perish publish oh. or perish <laughs> yeah and, and this, <laughs> what they mean is if you if you don't publish and everybody around you is publishing oh my god that's doomsday 
and you have to be really careful that you're not falling in that trap especially as law students who are on linkedin like when i was a law student i didn't know of linkedin's existence i'm not joking so i was spared much of this toxic culture uh, but uh, this is not to say that my batchmates were not publishing and i didn't know about i knew about it but i mean uh, i wasn't mercifully i wasn't uh, caring about it a lot and it it didn't bother me that i'm falling behind or anything like that and i would really uh, encourage everybody who's watching or listening to not not fall in that trap of oh my god my peers are publishing and just don't uh, just take your own sweet time with it if it takes 2 years if it takes 3 years you let it take that time and maybe you won't publish anything when you're in law school maybe your first publication comes after that but you uh, really will feel that you've done something meaningful and it it may bring you a sense of uh, satisfaction that three or four blog posts will not and often people think that but at the end of five years i want to apply for a job and i want to put it on my cv what will i show as as publications uh, but uh, as if i were to go and recruit people and i saw there's somebody who's written four blog posts it's not particularly impressive i mean it's not uh, i would obviously go and read those blog posts uh, if i'm interested in some of the areas uh, if i am hiring for a constitutional law policy position and if you've written something on free speech then i will try and open that as as some sort of a writing sample mm-hmm. but not more than that it, the number of publications is not going to be impressive yeah. uh, to me and it's not certainly not going to come across as impressive that you have four blog publications but no journal publication so uh, i mean it it will also seem like see see what you said about perception that there is there are some piece some places where you can get published because you have submitted it before Quick. others yeah and uh, th- that perception is not uh, just something that occurs to you it occurs to everybody so even the recruiter knows it <laughs> the recruiter is very well aware of the uh, factors that play into these publications so don't don't rush after uh, the short one rush after the journal and mm. try to take your time with it it's okay if it takes time it's okay if you're not the first in your class to get published yeah. but uh, try to make it meaningful for yourself and for for the academic community as well because what you what you say in a journal is most likely going to be a helpful contribution definitely uh, you know this before i move on to the questions that i had something emerges from what you've said and i wish to unpack that you said that as a recruiter you wouldn't give much weightage to blog articles as much as as much weightage as you'd give to a journal article now because you've also read for an llm at one of the finest universities in the world is that also true for llm applications because a lot of students uh, at least my peers are writing blog posts articles whatever in the hope of helping them secure llm admissions at universities abroad now what do your take on that writing a blog writing a journal article which one carries more weight if you have only blog posts and no journal articles that be a setback what what are your thoughts on that uh, i think for all purposes uh, llm applications included uh, a journal article will always have more weight than maybe even 10 blog posts mostly because of the rigorous process of review that is involved in a, in a journal publication see it is the review 
the perception of being published in a quality journal is always that you've gone through a process of self reflection mm-hmm. of patient writing of challenging yourself on your own logical inconsistencies and you've emerged out as a grown man the man or woman and the idea is because you've gone through that process you are a uh, smarter individual than who you were before you started writing yeah that is a and in my view that is a correct assumption for all uh, serious rigorous writing and i'm not trying to uh, talk about blogs in a pejorative way blogs can also serve that function uh, but only sometimes only if those blogs are also the more serious ones yeah uh, blogs can often serve as uh, as a great place for academic discussion on nascent ideas which you don't have enough uh, literature on uh, but you want to just put them out there so that other people can also read and engage with it and maybe you can find a co-author on the blog and something can emerge out of it so blogs can be very useful but uh, they are not places uh, for you to uh, get published and then feel that uh, i have uh, secured something that will get me an llm admission yeah. i i don't think that will work wow I, that that's great advice and i and i hope a lot of people including me imbibe that uh so moving on just just another connected question to what we've spoken about you said uh the the thinking is that if you've gotten your piece published in a quote unquote good reputed journal it means that you've undergone a process of self reflection deep research and so on what qualifies as a good uh, law review journal um of course a, a journal that is associated with a reputed university uh, has a self assigned value to it but if because these days in india we have a lot of student run journals which are run by you know national law schools and so on are those journals also good enough or are journals which are reviewed by proper senior academics only considered what are called reputed journals uh this is a tough question because my i mean i would instinctively think that uh, anybody who's looking at journal descriptions would prefer journals who are that are uh, reviewed by academics and established advocates but it turns out that some of the more successful journals in india are uh, not uh, reviewed by academics yeah. and they are student run uh, completely so uh, it's i think it's fine uh, either way uh, what you have to really look at is uh, look i think the prestige of the journal is something that uh, may not necessarily reflect uh, it may not necessarily be something that the journal always deserves as in it may be that some some journal has a much better editorial board yeah. uh, and there is another journal uh, that has just has uh, students and they are not as experienced but still with passing years you've seen more and more serious academics publishing in that journal and reposing their faith in that journal despite the fact that it's student run and it may not be as deserving and when i say deserving i always mean it in quotes mm-hmm. uh, and because of that uh, that faith that is reposed even those uh, students are taking it much more seriously and the uh, editing process is automatically much more rigorous so uh, you will have some journals which are uh, which are great despite being student run and that you will have to just uh, keep an eye out for it is unfortunate that uh, some journals will always be considered more prestigious than others uh, and if you 
publish in a journal which is from a law school uh, automatically the thought will be okay this is not as prestigious as b law school's journal uh, but it is how it is and i think the top nlus uh, whatever journals they have will automatically be viewed as more prestigious quote unquote than other journals but it's how it is and i think you will have to sort of everybody has to now live with that sure uh, hierarchy that's been created yeah definitely and to a large extent i don't think that that hierarchy is incorrect because uh, because anyone who has written a paper naturally wants to publish in a good place and it is the assumption that these top nlus have good journals so they send good papers there papers would get yeah. rejected from there eventually seeped out into what are called not good enough law journals so i think that that's how it works from my rudimentary understanding yeah. <laughs> no no that's absolutely right it's just a it's a circle yeah it's exactly like exactly like capitalism works <laughs> feed something in one place and then it pops out of another but yeah, yeah this is video ka trailer yeah. that's what's going on. <laughs> yeah yeah okay so yeah moving on uh i now want to talk about the process of literature review you know like you said uh, writing a sustained good law uh, journal article means that you've engaged with prior literature on it but often you might find that there is so much that has been written on a subject so how do you identify which papers are relevant to my own um, idea when do you stop researching and get down to writing how do you know you have not missed out on anything important uh, how do you navigate this all, all of this yeah this is a particularly tricky question i don't think even i have the answer uh it's uh how do you find literature is is a research exercise and uh for that there is a one size fits all answer which is <laughs> you just uh keep researching and you don't my, my uh, i had the opportunity of creating a legal research module for for loctopus yeah. and it, there my supervisor was mr uh, abhay rajnayak who's a, a professor at azim premji and he he used to say this he said uh, there's a successful researcher is one who will not stop at page 2 of google research uh, google search results and most of us uh, when we are trying to ascertain if there is any literature on on what we are going to write we'll look at two pages three pages four pages of uh, google search results and be like agar relevant hota it would have come up in these in these four five pages he says the really gritty researcher will Uh, go up to up to page up to page fifty if need be, uh, uh, and then search JSTOR, then find online or whatever other platforms you have. Uh, but till the time you are absolutely sure that you have covered everything exhaustively, you won't stop. And if it takes one fifty articles, you will read one fifty articles. If it takes ten uh, books and twenty books, then you read ten twenty books. That's the process of research. So uh, one way to get around it is you choose a topic. uh which is so recent yeah and so new that not enough has been written about it but if you're uh, actually interested in very interested in a topic that's been debated a lot then you have to put in that much effort and it's not because uh, people should not view this as just a pedantic requirement imposed by journals yeah. what is this why do we have to read so much it's actually an ethical obligation that you owe to the research community it's that uh when you 
take up the task of writing an article you are saying that i want to contribute to the discussion all of you have been talking about it and i have something to say on it and it's unfair to that group if you have not already read what all of them have already spoken about and said and uh, if you just come and waste their time and say i have something to say it's just uh, i mean you're taking up space which you needn't have taken that's the idea so it's it's more of an obligation to the community that you will read everything cite uh, others who have said those things before you mm-hmm. and then engage with them and then say this is what i think people have not said and or this is what i think people have said but that's this wrong in my view and i want to challenge it something like that so your discourse has always to be relative and your paper and your argument have to be relative to what has already been said before that's no. the idea just just to push this push this thought a little further what if in the process of research you find out the arguments that you wanted to articulate have already been raised and published uh, what do you do then yeah no it's unfortunate but the answer you stop uh, you 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 just say that okay this exact same thing has been said by something else so pat yourself on the back uh, for thinking just like another wise person before you and then you stop Yeah. Uh, unless you have something further to say it's unfortunate but researchers have to do it uh but that's about it yeah i understand however the that the the ongoing practice is that if you found something that has already been said you paraphrase it in your own words and put it <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, yeah. The practice in college projects is certainly that <laughs> exactly yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah um moving on to the other question that again ties to you know uh, literature review it's the methodology of writing and researching and I, from from what i've understood from your writing you side more and more with empirical research your larger bench rule paper then the the one in the nujs law review that you wrote uh, on a uh, on habeas corpus and those things uh, all of those backed strongly by data not merely doctrinal uh what's your opinion on doctrinal researching empirical researching how do you decide okay this this requires a more doctrinal argumentative style this requires a more empirical argument what are your thoughts on that yeah uh, again i think this is something that has been decided by 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 the topics that i discovered mm. so for example the habeas corpus paper on preventive detention uh that was written because uh with mr shankar narayan uh, i was assisting him in a habeas corpus matter at the supreme court he was one of the political prisoners during the article 370 uh withdrawal and i just saw that the supreme court is adjourning the matter day after day and two weeks three weeks four weeks the government's lawyer will come and say oh, or the, or his junior will come and say sir is on legs in another court will you please adjourn it and then they adjourn it by three weeks wow. so it was quite uh, disheartening because for that matter i had done this exhaustive doctrinal research on what is habeas corpus how important is it what are the values that the supreme court has laid down and these judgment after judgment during constitution benches the supreme court says oh, no no most precious right of personal liberty and we will be we will show extreme alacrity in everything that we decide. and you see that this is not really playing out so i was uh, wondering uh, 
uh, how quickly does supreme court really decide habeas corpus petitions it says a lot uh, but does it really walk the talk that was my uh, that was the idea that drove it and because i wanted to test that the obvious way to do it was through data yeah and that's why i uh, went to the to the empirical side of it uh, not because i wanted to do an empirical paper or a doctoral paper but having said and equally with the larger bench and we were just discussing uh, judgments after judgments as i as i explained and then we thought okay why don't we just put this together in a paper and see if we can publish it so uh, it was both by accident but uh, still uh, notwithstanding that i would say uh, i have felt that empirical research papers uh, especially the ones that try to collect or try to make an argument through data uh they are more effective in making that argument uh not because doctrinal is not good or whatever but because it is very hard to refute data all you can do is refute arguments that arrive from data inferences that can be drawn from data but like in that habeas corpus paper uh the findings are that you know in most preventive detention statutes the maximum period for which the government can put you under preventive detention is one year now that paper will show you that most cases are being or on an average perhaps supreme court is taking uh, 9 months 10 months to dispose of a habeas corpus matter in a preventive suppose the supreme court finds that the detention was illegal the person has already served 10 months out of 12 months 12 months is the maximum period in any case he would have been out in 12 months so what's the point of this remedy of habeas corpus that you celebrate in your judgment i mean so it's one thing that is uh, to say you know habeas corpus is very important supreme court should show alacrity which many people have said but quite another to say look th- this is the actual report card of the supreme court it's very hard to uh, refute the data uh, on that so that's why i feel and i've increasingly started to feel that uh, maybe it's it's time that more and more researchers start collecting data about what's actually happening mm-hmm. at the courts mm-hmm. uh, there is enough now uh, on on most issues of liberty for example on bail on preventive yeah. detention on other issues we know what the values are but really to put put the courts on a pedestal is uh, for, for the things that they say is one thing but you should really also draw up a report card on the side yeah. to see what they're doing and that's why th- that's my interest in Uh, in empirical research both for the habeas corpus thing and for the larger bench rules they keep saying oh we will follow precedent mm-hmm. there's there are a couple of judgments which say you cannot even comment upon a co- coordinate bench decision let alone disagree with it so uh, you can't even say that's wrongly decided perhaps in my view but look at what they're doing the two judge benches were declaring seven judge benches uh, per incurium at some point so it's uh, it's quite strange in my view when Uh, that's why i mean i feel like if you're doing it empirically uh, chances are that you're presenting some very useful information for the community to take forward and the argument can go anyway somebody can use your data to make any argument but uh, it's very important for the community to have that information in the first place wow so a couple of questions uh, i want to know from you and i think they tie to your practice of the law in addition to writing papers so like you said that um the idea for doing an empirical research emerged while you were arguing these matters or assisting gopal sir in them uh, you saw what the government side was doing what the prosecutors were doing and that really got you thinking about uh, let's look at data let's see what it says yeah. now do you think 
practicing the law offers a more nuanced perspective of an issue that often academics might not have uh this is a bit tough to say now because i am on the litigation side of it i can say yeah there are many things that academics would spot but uh, you know equally i feel like litigation uh, is uh, i always say it's not as honest a profession as you would want it to be <laughs> so in litigation you always are uh, driven by what your client has to say there is a goal that is already set for you and any argument that you now build using any kind of research whether it's doctrinal or empirical is going to be to that end so in i don't mean to say lawyers are dishonest i i mean to say that it's uh, the exercise itself mm-hmm. the nature of the exercise is such that you it doesn't matter what you think you have to argue this position now just figure out a route to reach that position and academia is not like that so litigation is often influenced by these uh, these thoughts and it's possible that even when i'm writing as a litigator i am sometimes influenced by uh, my own uh, perceptions which i had developed in a previous case or whatever because mm-hmm. i have seen the plight of my client yeah with uh, somebody else as uh, i haven't seen the other side maybe a government lawyer would write the same thing very differently yeah. uh, but in academia this uh, the detachment is therefore a plus as well you don't have that sort of involvement and therefore you can really take an objective view of what's going on uh, but yeah i think both both things are true uh, a litigator can also see things that are more uh more visible only to litigators uh, in court how judges behave uh with uh, with lawyers how judges are uh, dismissing slps in 30 seconds uh, this you know this romantic idea of the supreme court as an appellate court that are uh, high court ne de diya to supreme court chale jayenge kya hai <laughs> when you go to the supreme court you realize what's happening the judges already read the brief is not to say that the judges don't come prepared but they come prepared with a be determined mind to dismiss your slp <laughs> 90% of the cases and yeah. you have 30 seconds you really have some judges who are holding the item 30 is called out the judge book, uh, picks up the brief says yes dismissed <laughs> the lawyer has 30 seconds to convince the judge that please don't dismiss it there's a point of law is that and judges so these things are uh, i mean they slowly travel also to academics it's not like litigators don't speak to academics but uh, i mean these are small things that litigators will know about the profession wow no but, but just on the point of itself is being dismissed how do you even begin convincing because on vcs what if the court master mutes you the moment judge has spoken and then you have no how do you even convince the judge to stop full stop, full stop. you know <laughs> and there is uh, there are so many judges we've had who have uh, you know who who will just write down dismiss Allah, dismiss notice dismiss notice on every slp and they'll just uh, be like dismiss notice dismiss notice if by chance the lawyer doesn't appear then it's automatically getting dismissed or automatically getting uh, allowed this is not uh, not to say that the supreme court should be entertaining these many slps in my view even what the supreme court admits it should not be admitting but uh, i mean put that aside the the way that slps are heard it's it's an unfortunate reality but it's something the supreme court can't help because of the volume of cases yeah and that's really the reason why this is happening but uh, i mean whatever it is it needs some serious reform <laughs> true you know uh, one more question which ties to the practice of law and 
writing. Uh, like you said, the, the, the habeas corpus uh, paper, uh, preventive detention paper was really critical of the way courts are engaging with this. Similarly, the LBR issue, you know, it, it's, it's a reprimand in a way to courts to follow what has already been said. And just like you, there are several other lawyers, I'm sure, who are writing these uh, analytical, critical pieces of the judiciary, of the legal system, and so on. Have you ever, because obviously these papers must be read in some circles, must reach the judges at some point in time. No? <laughs> okay. But, I don't know. I mean, perhaps. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, my question yeah. is, have you ever felt that there is a sort of branding of these kind of lawyers in court where the courts feel, oh, you, you'll go ahead, write an article, you'll not uh, appreciate our judgment. Has that ever happened? Have you felt that perception anywhere? No, no, uh, never. In fact, I think judges are uh, trained well enough to, to be able to distance themselves from this. And I've, uh, I don't even name judges when I and I do this, but I, there are so many people who will really pick out names of judges and be like, this guy really messed up or that woman really messed up. And uh, still, I don't think uh, any judge is uh, going to take that uh, to heart. In fact, I've seen uh, sometimes, unfairly, opposing lawyers are using these things to uh, point out about, you know, what, uh, my lord, you know what this guy wrote? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the judges have been uh, fair enough to say that's outside the court and that's part of their free speech. So please don't bring it here. So it's, I mean, it's a nice thing and I don't think any judge is going to, uh, if at all, they're going to take it seriously. They're going to engage with it. If they don't agree with it, they'll dismiss it. Uh, they dismiss the idea like they dismiss SLP, <laughs> but uh, it's uh, not going to affect them in that in that sense. I don't think they're uh, sensitive like that, yeah. yeah. Interesting, because I was always curious about this, because on, on Twitter, you get the impression that these papers and yeah. articles might get discussed. Some lawyers' names are also taken in court. This is what that lawyer writes, yeah. his or her blog. Yeah. So I, I really yeah. want to know. So yeah. really, really interesting to get your perspective. Uh, yeah. yeah. Coming back to our writing aspect, um, I now want to understand how you structure your paper. And I understand everyone's process of this can be their own and unique to how they wish to approach a paper. But I ask this specifically to you because uh, ever since I started reading your papers, they've taught me a great deal about how should one argument flow from one to the other. I've always found it fascinating. So how do you go about uh, deciding the flow of your article, deciding uh, what kind of an introduction to write, a solid conclusion, you know, all of these things. What is your thinking behind them? Mm. Yeah, I think one thing I always do is I make a bullet point uh, structure, which is always one page. Uh, I, I don't care how long the article is. It, it can be a... Uh, 30 page article like the LBR paper, mm -hmm. I will always have a uh, sort of a bullet point structure as to this is my first argument, this is my second argument, third argument, and then the sub arguments as sub bullets. What that helps me do is obviously it takes a lot of time to build that. Uh, I will first make a first draft of it, then I look at it and be like, this, this is not flowing well because, uh, and it's very important to put in all the necessary details in that bullet point structure because you realize that if uh, if I say this, if I say statement A before I say statement B, 
uh, it will not make logical sense. So statement B has to come before statement A. And then you realize, oh, but statement A is part of a of argument one. No. Uh, yeah. Which argument has to come before argument B? So how do I navigate that? And often the solution to this is found by explaining the gap in the introduction itself. And you know the uh, beauty about academic writing is you don't have a, a set format for it. There is no correct way in which you have to write your introduction. Mm-hmm. You just have to, or, or the rest of your paper, you just have to make sure that it is absolutely clear to the reader. The reader shouldn't be left wondering what what the argument is. And if there are any sort of gaps or terms that you are using in your paper, which you think need explaining, they can always be explained in the introduction. And there is, uh, you can divide your introduction into subheadings. You can say this is the scope of my paper. Uh, these are the caveats that I want to enter before. Uh, the, and I've seen some excellent papers uh, which begin with the caveat that this is ex- this is the precise scope of my paper and the reader should know that I am not going to talk about A and B in this paper. And I think it's it's such a beautiful thing to say. It's it's a very small thing. Uh, maybe many, many people think it's in- insignificant. But I feel it's very fair to the reader who may be conducting a literature review exercise <laughs> and he he or she may find that okay this paper is actually not useful for me or it is useful for me because it talks exactly about what i wanted it to talk about so that kind of disclosure in the introduction is is great and so that's what i do i will first prepare a bullet point structure identify the things that are to be introduced in the in the introduction uh, and and then uh, that that's about it the two things that I always ensure are there in my introduction are one, the structure of the paper, and I will make it a point to disclose it very clearly. And this is what part one will have, part two, part three. This is also something I've learned from others, of course. And the other things in my introduction will be an introduction to the question I'm addressing. And perhaps this is one mistake that many people uh, in their initial years will make. The introduction is not an introduction to uh, to the topic, it, it's a, it, it's actually very intuitive to think that when you're writing introduction, you're introducing the topic. You have to introduce your paper. Yeah. So it is, and the two are different because your paper is essentially an argument or it is supposed to be. Uh, you, uh, When I say bullet point structure, what I mean is I have already decided that my one line argument of this uh, 5,000 word paper is this. This is the one sentence that summarizes everything and how do i break up this sentence into the 5000 words that's the exercise and uh, you don't have to narrate it in a way that one section is only describing existing literature one section is only describing the law on the point mm-hmm. and this final section is like now let me discuss what my views are on this mm-hmm. that uh, i don't think that's the that's necessarily wrong but uh, at a preference level i don't uh, really prefer that uh, I would prefer papers who at which out, at the outset will say, this is what I want to say about this topic and then go about breaking that up into portions. Maybe some part of it is descriptive completely. That's fine. But it has to be descriptive with the warning that uh, or with the explanation that this is why I'm describing this. This is why this is essential as a prong in my argument. Yeah. So uh, that if it's phrased like that, I think... Uh, I prefer that. So that that's how I structure my paper. I think that sort of 
answer yeah. the question. That, that's, that's really insightful, actually. Uh, just, just a couple more questions on this. Uh, like you said in your introduction, you include the roadmap. You know, the first part will do this, second part will do that. And before writing, you prepare a bulletin as to what the entire structure of your paper ought to look like. Um, do you write this roadmap after having written the substantive portion of the paper? Or do you be sure to write it before you start writing the other sections? Because otherwise, you know, how, how does this work? I'm, I'm curious to know. Yeah, so I'm going to tell you two things. One, how I do it and one, how other wise people have told me to do it, which are different. Uh, <laughs> I've been told always that introductions have to be written first. Uh, but uh, I have never done it and I've never felt comfortable doing it. Not because, uh, mostly because I don't want to uh, commit myself to something and then have to change it later. I first want to make the argument. And then I want to make sure that my introduction is uh, very short and it's only as, uh, as I only write what is necessary to uh, bring the reader into the paper. That's all. I don't want to keep uh, pontificating about the issue. Yeah. So if there is a substantive discussion that is to be had about uh, the subject matter or the issue, then I will not do it in the introduction. I think many people do it in the introduction very briefly, but I will usually have a second section or a part uh, that does that. So uh, that's why I think I'm able to push that towards the end. Mm. Uh, and I want to make sure that I'm doing it at the end so that I have already identified all the gaps, all the terms I want to define, all the caveats I want to enter. Uh, because these keep popping up to your head as you're writing the paper as well. Mm. So as you're writing it, you'll realize that this is a confusion that the reader might have. So just note it down so that I can address it in the introduction. So, uh, I mean, that's that's how I do it. But I have to tell you that many, many people have told me that the right way to do it is first write your introduction because it is a compass for you. It will tell you that this is the direction your paper is to take. And you will be tempted when you're writing the paper to, to steer away here and there. Maybe I should write about this also. Look, this excellent article I find. Maybe I should explore that angle as well. So the title and your introduction coupled with each other will help you stay focused on what you committed to in the first mm -hmm. place. So I, don't, I don't like that commitment, so I don't do it. But uh, this is how other people have told me to do it. Yeah, interesting, interesting. Uh, another really interesting and important discussion that I often have with my friends is that, bro, look, I've written everything. I want to conclude my paper. How do I conclude? I've already written everything I have to say. How do I sum everything up in a fresh way and give something new to the reader that might bring it a sense that might give it a sense of finality how do you write a solid conclusion very simple answer the conclusion has to be very stale very repetitive very stale uh, i also i mean i never try to put something new in a conclusion uh, in fact i used to do it uh, until uh, two reviewers in, in my journal publications really scolded me for introducing new points and in, in conclusions. And since then, all I do is I will have a one para or two para conclusion saying in part one, I showed this in part two, I tried to argue this part three, this, and therefore my conclusion is one sentence. That's yeah. it. I mean, that's quite, quite enough from a conclusion perspective. So like a and I don't think version yeah. of your uh, introductory roadmap. Is that, is that what you're saying? That's right. That's right. Hmm. So in a, in the introduction, what you, uh, says, I propose to examine this. 
but in the conclusion uh, you will just in one line you will summarize the findings of every part of your paper and that's i think uh, uh, many people when they are researching so i'll just add a caveat before i say this the caveat is that the everything i'm drafting is is like a like a litigator like really concise don't don't make the reader read what they don't want to read so <laughs> if they want to jump jump to my conclusion and assess what i have argued uh, in which part and if they just want to jump to that part and read that portion they should be able to do it so therefore my introduction and my conclusion are tailored like that uh, to make it easier for the reader that's why i do this so uh, i also don't think there is any right way to to frame your conclusions but that that sentence you said in the middle is correct uh, don't add anything new in your in your conclusion don't uh, make a new argument or uh, suggest new angles uh, in the conclusion you can always say this is an area that requires more uh, research that's okay uh, but uh, most good papers i've seen uh, which do this have already identified that area in a previous portion in the paper as well so what they do is they will uh, in making their argument uh, they will hit a roadblock and they acknowledge that yes this is a roadblock and i can't move further on this angle so i will leave it there but somebody a future researcher will have to explore this at some point and that gets recapitulated in the conclusion right so so that's the uh, broad theme but yeah i think i've seen many people also just suggest future areas of research and that's also acceptable in my view yeah. i don't always do it uh, uh, i don't uh, i mean sometimes i just can't think of anything i'm not that imaginative but <laughs> even if i'm able to do it i i feel like people will think about it yeah why should i <laughs> do it yeah i mean i it doesn't seem necessary sure uh, it seems like extra words that yeah uh, that the reader will not necessarily appreciate to advice yeah <laughs> uh, you know why i asked you questions specifically about the introduction and conclusion is because i was having a conversation with an editor friend of mine who's the editor in chief of a really good law review journal in constitutional law run by a uh, top national law school and and he told me the process and and it's quite similar to how slps are dismissed from what i could gather <laughs> with the student editor which is at the first glance who is generally a second year or a third year student will quickly glance through your abstract or intro and conclusion and if he or she thinks it it's okay or if it's not good enough reject it you'll get a mail we enjoyed reading your piece but it's unfortunately this and that uh, okay so that, I, I, this is very helpful insight for me i had no idea thanks <laughs> Yeah, I, I, so yeah, I was also quite amazed to know this from him. I, I don't know if that's the process followed in all other law review journals as well. Of course, there is. There is one that I sent my paper to, and I, of course, it got rejected. But I got a detailed analysis on literally wow. every every paragraph that I had written, and those guys were so kind that if you can incorporate these changes, we'd be happy to look at your paper again. So that's really nice. Yeah. Yeah, and if, free review, right? I mean. and and such great yeah paper yeah, yeah. yeah no so some people take this uh, job very seriously not because uh, i mean it's it's something they necessarily want to do for a living but because uh, they feel like it's giving back to the community and they were they were in our place at one point right we were all they were also submitting their pieces to journals getting rejected and feeling what exactly is the problem with my 
article and so it's them giving back and i think we should all be appreciative of of the effort that editors put in because it's exhausting work i i can imagine <laughs> it is uh, yeah yeah moving on um i i have a couple of questions about writing you know um are you there yeah yeah uh, uh, can you not see me hello yeah okay you 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 went off for a bit okay oh ho sorry sorry is there audio disturbance from the background no oh, no 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 it's all good oh, okay nothing okay okay cool yeah yeah there's some thak thak is going back that's why nahi wo it's no worries uh, so okay. yeah i i have a couple of questions on the aspect of writing uh, i'm personally quite quite passionate about it uh, all all sorts of writing poetry fiction uh, non fiction narrative uh, narrative retelling of facts and all that kind of thing but i also heard that um, you know and this is something that nasim talib says in one of his books that painters enjoy painting singers enjoy singing but writers enjoy having written so <laughs> so is is your process of writing uh, pleasurable to you or do you find it painful the words won't come to you you have all the research ready but you just can't put them into th- into a coherent sentence or if you write a sentence you absolutely hate it uh, what's what's your thinking on the process and art of writing yeah uh, no i think I, i actually enjoy the process of writing as well but i uh, i do relate with some of what you said sometimes it is very tough mm-hmm. the words won't come to you and uh, it's more than the words not coming to me it's the fact that uh, there is this constant anxiety that i am writing it in the wrong way that there is a better way to express this mm-hmm. uh, maybe i will write these two paragraphs and then i will regret having written it this way and then i will delete it and what a waste of time yeah. that that kind of uh, anxiety is there but uh, i think overall i really enjoy that process uh, the reason perhaps is that Uh, like i said i don't have deadlines for myself yeah. i do it in my own time uh, i give i allow myself to make those mistakes and come back to the draft if need be and i've realized that uh, uh, you know making those changes in your draft and going back those are not really uh, wastes of time as it intuitively seems that you know you've written a wrong draft and it's so Uh, it's such a good learning process and perhaps that is the most important part of the writing process you making those mistakes and then you realize that in future when you when you repeat uh, the writing process you, you, that's when you realize that okay i'm not making those same mistakes now and that's a good thing it's good that i went through that uh, hard process so it's patience that is required with this uh, entire uh, writing thing and yes it is painful uh, at least in the initially but i can assure you that it gets better <laughs> with time and yeah. you can slowly and slowly start feeling more confident after having uh, written uh, written more right yeah you know on this point i just want to mention two things i i really listen and read gautam bhatia's work as as so many of us do and he yeah. says in one of his interviews that uh, you know writing is like a muscle the more you exercise it the better you get and uh, the if you don't exercise it enough it's going to be harder when you try to get back to it your muscles are going to cramp <laughs> yeah and and just another no, thing absolutely on, right, of, yeah. on the point of redrafting your paper uh, there's you know jeffrey archer i i grew up reading his books and then he says that 
the first draft of his book is always thrown in the bin and the one that reaches the hands of the reader is always the 17th or the 18th draft with every word rewritten 18 to 17 times so yeah i i can totally imagine how you think uh, redrafting yeah. is actually a useful exercise yeah and just imagine him uh, he's a guy who's written so much yeah <laughs> still he uh, he's very willing to uh, go back on his draft so many times and that's something we should all learn uh, it it takes a lot of uh, you really have to curb your ego <laughs> and admit that i'm not going to get it right it's okay and let me uh, let me still try to uh, flesh out my thoughts in the best way that i can manage at this point Yeah. and in future when somebody points out to me that this is not clear enough i will rephrase it no problem definitely just a few more questions on writing itself uh, now there are ways that you can write a paper academic writing is of course thought to be terse direct there's no need for fancy words cut down on on extra words only include what's essential don't bore the reader don't exhaust the reader but there are also papers i've read which include a lot of you know adjectives in their description of the law they try to make it rhythmic poetry and that in itself is also a different experience what's your take on on writing what kind of writing works best or maybe you want to explore with one area if you've been with one for for a long point of time what are your thoughts on on the kind of writing that must be employed for academic articles so this is again a matter of preference i suppose and my preference is uh, to avoid any of the the, the flamboyant language uh, i've while in college we were given some of these readings by the uh, by by the illustrious scholars of our time and uh, they were all so hard to comprehend <laughs> and you you'd be like uh, why are these people celebrated so much yeah. and uh, somebody else used to say one of our teachers used to say you know you should aspire to be somebody who everybody wants to read uh, i mean if you have written something and everybody should be like oh i want to read that their work and sometimes you're left wondering whether these guys are so famous more because of the kind of language they use uh, so i mean uh, i'm somebody who really believes in uh, making things accessible especially in a country where english is not uh, people's first language very few people who grow up speaking and uh, uh, talking to their families in english most people have uh, some own vernacular languages so it's not uh, wise in my view to subject indian uh, fellow indians to you know language that is hard to comprehend i don't mind making it a colorful piece at all i feel like i'm that's a skill that i lack so i don't try but if you uh, if you think you're an artistic person who can really drive home an inspirational story to make a legal argument you should explore it uh, i don't think that's a problem uh, the only thing that you should avoid doing is use language or references that uh, most of your readers will not be able to connect with and there is a tendency to do this uh, and we really have to resist hard to to escape from that tendency which is to say something that escapes the audience because that that's what makes us uh, distinct from them and maybe even superior to them uh, so that's a tendency that uh, i would always advise you to run away from uh, don't don't try to be different from your reader try to gel in with your reader yeah. and try to make sure that 
they they get everything what you're saying definitely and i think this ties to what uh, professor taruna khaitan was talking about in one of his interviews he said uh, if you've thought of something clever it does not necessarily need to translate in your paper clever things can be left to left with yourself as well but but i do believe yeah. even simple writing can be beautiful right uh, take the chandrachud brothers for example the kind of books they are able to write even non lawyers can access them and they are written so wonderfully they're almost like gripping story you know you want to turn the page see what happens same with people like rohit day and so on uh, so, so is that the kind of writing you are also inspiring to or your writing style is you want it precisely to be more direct it says what you want it to say, want it to say and be done with it yeah so uh, i i completely agree that that's the kind of writing i i find inspiring and i have also in my law school years i used to read a lot of uh, gautam bhatia's blogs yeah. and see see the uh, simplicity with which he would approach not to say that uh, i mean uh, his language is always easy or it's always hard uh, i don't know but the way he structured his articles it was always very inspiring for me to see the kind of effort he put in uh, to ensure that his readers are always following mm-hmm. and uh, that's so that is something that i've always try to uh, take away from from reading his pieces i used to read it a lot and yeah. uh, i feel like this uh, some of my some of me structuring my own pieces and the way i explain things is uh, in part from from what he does and uh, then also i think some some people i read in my llm program uh, the way they explained including scott hershowitz if you read some of his sentences are so short and crisp and he is uh, very very sure that the only complicated word that he uses in the entire paragraph is the technical word about which the paper is written wow it's it's so beautiful if you if you think about it what it means is uh, the reader is is obviously going to be uh, forced to pause at that word and then the reader will realize okay this is what the paper is actually about let's see what this means in the next para and he will explain it uh, in very simple language yeah and Uh, so i mean these are some of the values that i've tried to take away from from these people wow but yeah you're absolutely right i i think uh, simple writing uh, and trying to make sure that the reader is always with you this is how i like to put it that's the uh, best virtue that any writer can uh, aspire for indeed uh, so because we're running short of time and i still have a lot of questions to cover I, i'll try to you know move things along um yeah one question that has always been in my mind is about the issue of contributing something new to the literature it is said that if you're writing an academic article a journal piece don't write it if you don't have anything new to say if you're only going to describe things that have already been said in 10 books in your own way you might not write it as i mean okay you can write it for your own understanding but you need not get it published but how do you as 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 a student who wants to write journal articles come up with something new sometimes it can get so daunting and challenging right you want to ra- say something you found you found your eureka moment aha but here's a paper that has already said it so how do you discover something new to add how do you go beyond writing descriptive pieces yeah i feel like once again i'm the wrong person to ask because uh, this 
you know this need to find something new uh, it arises more often in cases where you are being given a topic to write on and then you start exploring the literature and then you're like acha ye bhi bol diya ye bhi bol diya and now what should i say mm-hmm. so you're lost in that moment more because you haven't uh, really chosen the topic yourself uh, it's been given to you but in areas like so for example uh, if i was writing on habeas corpus i mean i know what i want to say and all i have to do to check is uh, has anybody done this kind of yeah. uh, empirical research in the past and if they haven't done it then i will i will de- definitely do it this is something that needs to be done and uh, equally with the obscenity in the case article that we were earlier talking about it was uh, people were talking about uh, whether it is obscene or not but nobody had taken taken a detailed analysis of it in a law review article so i thought i'll do it so uh, in those situations what ends up happening is you already have an idea and also a tentative argument that you want to make and what you have to check is has somebody else made that argument if they have made it then you just drop it there unfortunately like we discussed earlier but it's not as perhaps it's not as uh, exhausting and disappointing as uh, a case where you're really trying to look for a topic and an article and then Uh, uh, look for a topic and write on that and then you start researching and do one article after another article and at the 20th article you realize that oh god this is the same thing that i wanted to say uh-huh. that must be really really exhausting and i can understand but uh, like i said i would really encourage you to uh, be a reader uh, of of issues that interest you uh, read as many perspectives as you can then try to write about uh, one of the things that that you've read rather than picking a topic off uh, off an advertisement for a or a call for papers yeah that's that's actually very sage advice and i'm going to listen to it over and over again um coming back to the final set of questions i want to know your philosophy on facing rejections uh because it i i think it's only obvious that if you send a paper out chances are it might not get accepted in the first plush of course as you get more experience uh, maybe your first or second draft are so tight that everyone wants to publish it but when you're just starting out you might face multiple rejections and that might even dissuade someone to quit the idea altogether and say oh god this this just has no potential what, what do you do then once a paper has been rejected multiple times how do you find the will to keep going on no i think the first thing you should know is everybody gets rejected it's uh... like two weeks ago a paper that i had sent to a journal got rejected and i keep keep getting these rejections on and off and the thing is uh, we see so many successful people around us on linkedin who will never share these stories on <laughs> about their like i am not going to put on linkedin that my paper got rejected but uh, that doesn't mean that i am uh, you know publishing left right and center the idea is uh, you have to accept like i said the fact that uh we are not uh always in sync with a the journal b the readers and c maybe our own competence maybe sometimes we don't write as well as uh, we could have written maybe sometimes we have written it very well but the journal is just uh not interested in publishing it because uh that's not their area or they don't feel that they're 
readers open their journal to read that or uh, the journal might just think that the readers will find this boring it is not relevant it is too old a topic to to uh, refresh now it could be any reason and uh, the, i think the point is really teach yourself that all three reasons are okay it's okay to be rejected and to work on it over and over again that, that's the point of the learning process mm-hmm. if you don't get rejected uh, it won't it'll never happen that you don't get rejected everybody gets rejected but uh, the idea is uh, that's why journal publications are so rewarding yeah at the end of it it's not the fact that you can put it on your cv it's the fact that you were able to uh, put your thoughts in a way that are persuasive enough and uh, in a way that the journal felt that they can publish it that's the re- it's it is the revisions that take place in that process that are really meaningful so everybody should aim to uh, go through that process rather than Uh, being bothered about the outcome of it it gets rejected rejected you uh, if you want you can rework it send it to some other place uh, it gets rejected 10 times you send it to some other place the 11th time it's okay you don't have to uh, and sometimes it's possible that you really believe in the argument you're making but the reviewers are rejecting it because they don't agree with it and uh, i feel it's bad practice for reviewers to do that Uh, to reject the paper because they are disagreeing with your substantive argument on merits but if they do it and if you really believe in your argument start your own blog <laughs> publish it there uh, and uh, or put it up on ssrn yeah. if it's a longer journal piece you put it up there and say, uh, i mean try to uh, advertise it like that and don't uh, basically don't let others dictate your competence always be humble in the fact that always be willing to accept that yes i have uh, some flaws and i can improve on this to make sure i am a better writer but that doesn't mean that uh, i mean you you'll give up that the you will leave the process don't don't do that uh, and uh, but equally it's important to let it not affect your uh, your mental health if it's affecting your mental health you leave it don't uh, don't force yourself to do it just because oh i don't want to be a quitter that mentality is also a bit uh harmful yeah. so you have to balance all these things but uh, my suggestion is always be very very patient with this exercise don't run after eight deadlines and be your peer competition if if you stay away from these two things chances are that you will be able to do it patiently and slowly and at your own pace with your own comfort and that's that's really the uh, what brings the reward great i i completely agree with you uh moving on just and i'll conclude after this and one more last question um now you've been writing for a lot of years surely you must have learned a lot of things that someone who's just starting out does not know so what would be your words of advice or caution to someone who's just venturing into the field of legal academic writing what are some common mistakes that you think people would be well to avoid uh, what are things that they should try to do more and more as they try to research and write uh i would uh, again stress that uh, try to try to do it at your own pace you should dictate the terms of your writing not not a journal not a not a call for papers uh perhaps i would also say that always keep speaking to somebody Mm-hmm. Uh, writing is not a solitary process it's not you don't have to be a 
uh, a hero who's doing all this uh, by himself or herself and the top scholars of every area if you just see their papers you'll realize that uh, many of them have or most of them or all of them perhaps have acknowledgments always in their paper and they say i'm very grateful to a b c d e because they've engaged with me or i presented this paper at a conference and those students had uh, such insightful thoughts and you have to uh, learn from this and realize the kinds of this fly is really bothering really uh, understand the kinds of uh kind of investment that these authors are making in their papers just imagine this same paper is being uh presented in a conference students are giving critical inputs it's being discussed in the classroom perhaps then it's being discussed with colleagues being sent to professors who are giving comments and it is then after all those comments are imbibed and reworked that the person sends it for the first time to a journal and then you get journal reviewer comments and then you revise it according to that so this investment that you want to make in in that paper is really determinative of what comes off the paper and you should always be willing to make that investment uh, and have the patience to see it through uh, you should not uh, feel that you're wasting time or spending time on something that may not even result in fruition that possibility is always there but you have to allow yourself to be exposed to that possibility and it's okay you have to you have to learn to accept the fact that it's okay wonderful and so i'll come to my final question this is the question that i ask all the guests who have been on letter of law um and i'd love to know your thoughts as well um are you into reading uh, what kind of books do you really enjoy uh if you have some recommendations for our listeners it could be anything fiction non fiction poetry hindi english anything at all things that have been influential in your life or you've just enjoyed them so uh, i don't think i'll call myself a reader really uh, i've never been at least until until early years of my college uh, but i read hindi poetry now uh, and i read ramdhari singh dinkar uh, and bachchan and dushant kumar and some of these the, the famous poets only uh, i haven't really started uh, reading the more contemporary poets yet uh, maybe in sometime in the future uh, even atul bihari vajpayee somebody i used to read even though is much more contemporary uh, but yeah i mean this is uh, the limited scope of what i really like to read apart from the law Uh, some law articles and law books i keep reading here and there but obviously your question is not about that oh, no uh, it could I, be law books as well uh, you, oh, you okay no i mean your standard uh, like i am the kind of nerd who would open hmc advice <laughs> commentary <laughs> for for fun have you read have you read all three volumes no, no i don't read it like a, a let, let me read all through it i read portions of it so no i don't think i've read all of it at all uh, so much left but i keep uh, picking up portions from it here and there not not randomly let me read something today but yeah. mostly because something something comes up in a conversation and then i'm curious yeah. to know what he has said uh, but yeah i read that i uh, i've read uh, bhatia's books obviously uh, i've read uh, anuj bhavanya's quoting the people uh lately i was exploring this book on misinformation i forget what it's called it's uh, uh it, it's about uh, how you 
create a narrative of misinformation i forget the name the anatomy of what, what is it called do you know that name it's by some some shiv shankar something i'm afraid not wait i'll just tell you misinformation book <laughs> a fantastic book so i never look at the cover this is why uh you see that uh, i don't even remember its name <laughs> but yeah basically i mean uh, i i don't read a lot of these things i always when i go to my book rack i'm picking up tinkar or somebody uh, some very very famous poems that he wrote rashmirathi mm-hmm. urvashi kurukshetra parshuram mm-hmm. ki pratiksha i just keep rereading them because they are so inspirational definitely uh, uh, the point is not to gain some new insight uh, the point is just to read them and realize that okay there is more to life keep going so <laughs> after after every rejection <laughs> read rashmirathi well said and, uh, well said <laughs> <laughs> and i think with this ritanjay we can come to an end of today's conversation thank you awesome. so incredibly much for taking time speaking with me for almost 2 hours you know lots to learn and in the age of 15 second reels we are doing a 2 hour conversation hopefully people will find it interesting thank you so much for being here with me today. i did i did you're most welcome thank you thank you for having me and by the way that book is called the art of uh, conjuring alternate realities wonderful it's by, I, i'll be sure to recommend it and read it myself <laughs> yeah it's by shivam shankar singh and anand venkat narayan very fascinating great so with this i will yeah. stop recording now